So the subject of this evening's talk is wisdom and compassion. I'm wondering about the sound level. Can you hear me all right? Is it too loud? No. So the Buddha described the conventional world that we worldlings inhabit as a play of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, success and failure, praise and blame. These are what he called the worldly winds. Of course, we try to have the pleasure, the success, the winning, and the praise. And we fear pain, loss, failure, blame, and shame. These are the very conventional values in which we grow up and by which most people live. When our relationship to the world is ruled by the worldly winds, we are blown about in an endless cycle of seeking for pleasure and security, trying to avoid pain and insecurity. The path of the Buddha actually shows us a way out, another way, a deeper seeing into the nature of reality, which frees us from believing in the worldly winds as the states in which to place our faith. It is instead an invitation the Buddha offered us to live a life of truth. As Ashvagosha wrote about it many centuries before, he described it this way. The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha requires every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one's heart, to give up one's thirst for pleasure, and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, or retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if, like the lotus flower which grows out of muddy water but remains untouched by the mud, they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred. And if they live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. 
I think that's a very beautiful description of the journey that we are on, that we have undertaken when we come to practice. At lunch today, Jack and Gina asked me what I was going to talk about tonight. And I said, well, it's like this. And they said, oh, yes, we know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> I'm not sure if they really know, but I, I, I see this, this talk as this, as this. That's the way I visualize it. What I wish to talk about is that when we get in the, in the cycle of pursuing the worldly winds, it's like we are going around and round. The Buddhist name for this is samsara. And what I see that the Dharma provides is a possibility of moving out of this cycle and going into another cycle, which we could call the cultivation of Dharma wisdom and compassion, that we are actually able to move from the gravitational pull of the worldly winds, living a life of self, and moving into another gravitational field, which we could call a life of truth, in which these great qualities of wisdom and compassion inevitably grow in us and get developed. And they become the center, the the force that we most value in our lives. They are the qualities that we learn to rely on and place our faith in. So I'm going to talk about wisdom and I'm going to talk about compassion in a way as if they are separate, but that's only for the purpose of clarification and of talking. Really, they arise and intermingle and are very unified. But I will speak about them, at least in the beginning, as somewhat separate. They are seen to be the two wings of the bird of Dharma. The bird needs both wings to fly. It is said that both are necessary. Without compassion, any kind of wisdom that gets developed can be quite dry can be quite um, disconnected, detached. On the other hand, if we only develop compassion without wisdom, our compassion may be misguided, it may be sentimental. So when we are developing wisdom, we are developing what? What is the quality of wisdom? Different ways of describing it, one way I like, is that it is a way of seeing. It is a way of viewing ourselves and the world, a way of seeing reality. Proust wrote, we do not receive wisdom, we must discover it for ourselves. After a journey through the wilderness, which no one else can do for us, which no one can spare us. For our wisdom is the view from which we come at last to see the world. 
It is a way of seeing. On the other side is compassion, which I think of as a way of being, a way of being with ourselves, with tenderness, with mercy, with forgiveness, and a way of being with the world, with those same qualities. Wisdom is sometimes described as a quality of non-identification with our experience, not being fooled to think that whatever arises in our minds, hearts, bodies is who we are. Therefore, wisdom has the quality of being quite objective, not in a detached way, but in a clear way. Hamid Ali writes, the way we ordinarily see the world is not the way it really is, because we see it from the perspective of our judgments and preferences, our likes and dislikes, our fears and our ideas of how things should be. So to see things as they really are, we have to put these aside. Seeing things objectively means that it doesn't matter whether we think what we're looking at is good or bad. It means just seeing it as it is. If a scientist is conducting an experiment, he doesn't say, I don't like this, so I will ignore it. Although we may wonder about that sometime. (laughs) He may not personally care for the results because they don't confirm his theory. But pure science means seeing things the way they really are. If he says he's not going to pay attention to the experiment because he doesn't like it, that is not science. Yet this is the way most of us deal with reality, inwardly and outwardly. I spoke the other night about that quality of mind of not knowing, and we could say that that is an aspect of wisdom, the willingness to be in the truth of not knowing, don't know mind. Or Yogi Berra, who wrote many wonderful sutras, One of his, uh, my favorite ones of his is, uh, it's not what we know, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. So there's a wisdom in don't know. In the actual experience of not knowing, we are open and available to new perceptions. Related to this, and very much in the vein of what we were exploring in the instructions this morning when Jack led us through the guided meditation, is appreciating the functioning of awareness in our consciousness, that knowing quality of mind which is always with us, which is always shining the light on our experience, showing us reflecting in a very bare, unadorned way, without judgment or opinion, what is true. This is a quality of wisdom, 
because one, it is objective, and two, it gives us a perspective on our experience. Achan Sumedho writes, awareness is like space. There's room in it for everything. We always have a perspective once we know the space of awareness, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through, through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. This is what is meant by the practice of letting go. Rumi referred to this when he wrote the, the line of poetry that says, the radiant one inside of me who never says a word. Awareness does not speak. It is that vast mirror-like silence in which we live and which is always present. This quality of wisdom, of knowing, of objectivity awakens in us as we have insights. So I want to spend a little time talking about insights. And uh, as one student said one time, well, what is an insight? This is called insight meditation. And, you know, where are they? I haven't had any. How, how, will not, how will I know when I've had one? And, yeah, let's, let's, let's get with the program. Where are they? So, <clears throat> insights can happen in practice on many different levels. Certainly as we sit and walk and reflect on our lives and let all the experiences bubble to the surface, we may have insights into psychological issues or into life decisions or relational issues or health issues. And this is all very good. This is useful. This is helpful in our lives. But the classical aim of insight in mindfulness practice is insight into what are called the three characteristics of existence. We've mentioned these several times on this retreat. It's always good to hear them again, I think. It's always the way the Dharma works, it seems, is in part through repetition. You hear teachings over and over again. So what are these three characteristics? Very simply, the truth, of ceaseless change, the truth of the suffering that comes when we cling and hold on, and the truth that there is no locatable self. These are the classic three characteristics. I looked up the word insight in the dictionary, and I found this definition. Insight is the capacity to discern the true nature of a situation. Another definition, 
a penetrating and elucidating glimpse. Another day, oh, and then if you want to add to that the word liberating, a liberating insight, you can look at the word liberate. What does that mean? To set free as from oppression and confinement or control. So putting these two words together, liberating insight then is an illuminating and penetrating seeing which frees us from some kind of oppression, confinement, or control. Does that sound good? Would you like some? (laughs) A liberating insight is this shift in perception which affects how we view things. We are changed because of insight, and that is why they are so valuable. We are less oppressed and confined, and we see more clearly. With insight into impermanence, for example, we are no longer deceived by an appearance which promises permanence and solidity. This experience will last forever. This body is solid. So insights arise quite often in the conducive conditions of a retreat. But they are not under our control. We can't say, okay, I'm ready, bring it on. Or maybe tomorrow morning at 10, I'll come in and sit down, and then I'll say, okay, liberating insights, I'm ready. No, they don't work that way. If they did, we'd have much shorter retreats, probably. (laughs) Instead, on retreat, we cultivate the conditions which are maximally conducive to insights arising. What might they be? The development of concentration, the continuity of paying attention, the silence, being with yourself in a continuous way, slowing down, learning how to attend to your present experience, not too tight, not too loose, exploring what arises, seeing what it is, not getting stuck in repetitive grooves, Or if we do get stuck, finding out where we are grasping, where we are resisting. And also becoming aware of those moments of freedom, of beginning to see moments of genuine freedom. And we do this in a continuous way with an alert and relaxed effort, moment after moment after moment. And this is very conducive to the arising of insight. At first in our practice, it's not obvious that this way of attending to our experience in itself is a liberating force in our minds. That the seeing and the direct experiencing of what is so in the present has the power to free us. I know I didn't believe that. At the beginning of my practice, I thought something else was going to happen. (laughs) 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> when I started practice, and I started with some Tibetan teachers, and then I wandered into the Zen world for a brief foray, because perhaps those traditions are a little more exotic-looking and sounding, and perhaps they were Asian teachers, and perhaps because we did more chanting and bowing and other languages, I got a little mesmerized by the ritual and the mystery of it all. And so I, I sort of imagined that there were going to be secret teachings, that there really were, they did exist, and that it was just a matter of, you know, my finding out how you got in on that deal. <laughs> when would I receive them? And it took me a really long time to understand, with some disappointment, I have to admit, that the teachings of Dharma are what we call self-secret. We keep them secret from ourselves. They are always being given right here, right now, in this body, this mind, this ordinary experience unfolding before our eyes. What keeps them self-secret is our dullness, our distraction, our blindness. We don't see the open secret of truth unfolding right here in us, moment to moment. When I came to the Vipassana world, I heard a quote from Krishnamurti that was used quite a bit. I don't have the exact quote, but it was about how it is the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. I like the sound of that, the truth which liberates, you know, wow. That sounded really good. But I kept looking outside of my own experience for that truth. I thought I'd hear it in a Dharma talk or read it in a book or a particular teacher would somehow give it to me. And again, it took a while to convince myself that the truth I was seeking was actually appearing in my own very ordinary moment-to-moment experience. And what was even more significant was the realization that I didn't need to change my experience in order to contact the truth. That was really hard to get. I only needed to recognize it and be with it. So now I'd like to talk about Uh, an example of what I'm talking about, which is the experience that probably some of you, if not all of you, have had of looking at what is called a stereogram. They were very popular maybe seven, eight years ago. Those pictures that look on, just when you immediately look at them, they look like, like pictures with just random dots all over in color. How many of you have seen this, what I'm talking? So you know, yes, good. So you know how it is when, and it seemed like they were always at parties, and so there'd be wine involved or some (laughs) mind-altering substance. I don't know how much they help, but 
we would <laughs> we would stand in front of a stereogram and somebody would say, well, don't you see it? Don't you see that it's really a scene of the African bush with the elephants and the giraffes? And No, I don't see. I just see dots. I just see lots and lots of colored dots. But then if you kind of close your eyes and relax, you know, <laughs> settle back and not try too hard, not try too much, not try too little, just right. Suddenly, this picture would appear, a three-dimensional picture, just as it had been described. There are the elephants, there's the giraffes, there's the bush. Oh my gosh, how could I not have seen that? Insight is very much like that. It's like seeing what is there. It's been there all the time. But somehow, we've overlooked it. Somehow, we've missed it. So mindfulness is the means of giving us access to seeing in this way, seeing what we have overlooked, seeing what we have missed. The more we notice, with mindfulness, with carefulness, the unfolding of a pain in the body or an emotion in the mind or the play of thought, the closer we come to seeing the truth of what the Buddha called the three characteristics, the three marks of every moment of experience. The truth of change, the truth of the impersonal nature of all experience, the truth that when we try to stop change or get identified with what arises, there is suffering. It is the continuity of our mindfulness, of our attention, that gives us access to experiencing the truth of these three characteristics. And seeing them in our experience is a liberating insight. It frees us. It really does. It rearranges our perception. The secret teachings appear ordinary, completely available. So what is the effect on us of having such insights? In the text, it is said that seeing the truth deeply in this way is like finding an oasis in the desert, as if one had been traveling for a thousand miles and finally finds a place to rest. It is like taking a healing medicine and feeling well again. It is like cool moonlight, which soothes and pacifies the restless, tormented mind and body. It is like a flash of lightning in a dark and stormy sky. It is like the warmth of the sun breaking through the clouds. With insight, we experience very much an increase of faith, an increase of confidence, not only in the practice, but in our own capacity to see in this way. It's sometimes given, uh, the example is sometimes given of the rope and the snake. If you are walking in the woods in the dusk and you see on the path in front of you something which appears coiled, possibly like a snake, 
fear might arise when you go closer or if you have a companion that is more wise you go closer and you look more carefully you see that what has appeared to be a snake is only a coiled piece of rope in seeing that what happens you are relieved of a misperception you are seeing that what you had thought was dangerous was something to fear is not it's just a piece of rope and no one can come along and then convince you otherwise no one can come along and say that's really a snake it never was a snake it will not be a snake and it is not a snake now you see very clearly so when we have an insight it's like that nobody can talk us out of it that's why it becomes a realization it becomes real to us now this may sound kind of dramatic the way i'm describing this but sometimes insights happen very subtly very imperceptibly very gradually Suzuki Roshi talked about insight. He said sometimes it's like walking in the fog. You walk in the fo- on a foggy day and you don't realize until you come inside that you are drenched through. You are soaked with water. This might be something like you were here all week you had a good retreat but nothing flashy or aha you go home and maybe a week after you go home or 10 days after you go home suddenly you realize you are seeing in a new way or suddenly you are responding in a very different way that is the effect of insight One more thing about insight is the sense of well-being and peace and happiness which often arises in its wake. It is a it is a different kind of happiness than the happiness we think of usually. Nisargadatta wrote about this kind of happiness in dialogue with a student who asked him, "What is the difference between happiness and pleasure?" He said pleasure depends on things happiness does not The questioner then why are we not always happy Ms Argadatta as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there is nothing wrong with me I have nothing to worry about. The experience is of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause and what has no cause is immovable.
So this quality of, of wisdom awakens as we practice through insight into the three characteristics. We learn to live more easily with change. We learn to live in a world of interdependent connections, like what Gina was teaching you this afternoon. We learn that true safety lies not in holding on, but in letting go. And accompanying us every step of the way is the quality of compassion. Compassion brings our practice below the neck. It brings us into the world of relationships, not the exclusive relationships of our loved ones, our family, our friends, but brings us into connection with what the Native Americans call all our relations. Every living being on this planet, we discover this connection, whether it is a tiny little ant crawling up your leg or whether it is uh, a difficult person, or whether it is your boss, or whether it is the CEO of some company, we find suddenly we are in relationship with every living human being. A poem by Hafiz. Once a man came to me and spoke for hours about his great visions of God. He asked me for confirmation, saying, Are these wondrous dreams true? I replied, How many goats do you have? He looked surprised and said, I am speaking of sublime visions, and you ask about goats? (laughs) And I spoke again, saying, Yes, brother, how many do you have? Well, I have 62 goats. How many wives? Again, he looked surprised and said, Four. How many rose bushes in your garden? How many children? Are your parents still alive? Do you feed the birds in winter? And to all he answered. Then I said, You asked me if I thought your visions were true. I would say that they were if they make you become more human, more kind to every creature and plant that you know. In our practice, we, we practice compassion. We practice the, the loving kindness as this offering of unconditional love to ourselves and all beings. And in the practice of compassion, we use the suffering that comes to us as the springboard for opening our heart. The quivering of the heart in the face of suffering is the literal definition of compassion. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. The near enemy, those things that can look like compassion but are actually colored by other emotions, we could say our righteous anger, or fear, or grief, or pity. All forms of aversion, which if we live with them over time, are very draining and harmful to our well-being. And they distort compassion. 
Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. The attitude of compassion is very much that of seeing the world not as good and bad, not as right and wrong, not as good and evil, but as suffering and the end of suffering. This is a very important distinction which can help us in our lives. As we let go of grasping and aversion and see more clearly, we begin to taste the end of suffering. We see that facing suffering does not need to be about indulging in negativity, in fear, in a pessimistic view of life, but about coming out of denial and learning to love the world with an open heart, no matter what. To see suffering and to know the end of suffering is to see through these eyes of compassion. Sharon Salzberg writes, being able to acknowledge suffering, open to it, and respond to it with tenderness of heart allows us to join with all beings and to realize that we are never alone. We do this funny thing inside. When we're suffering, we tend to feel we're the only one. Compassion practice asks that we open that perception and realize that we are never alone in our suffering, that there are others who also have had this experience before us and are having this experience even as we speak. So we can include them in our wish for the end of suffering. Viktor Frankl, uh, who spent many years in one of the death camps in Germany. I actually had him as a professor in college and was very moved by his stories. He told one story. He was a doctor, so he had an opportunity in the camps to visit the hospital at times and to be with patients in the hospital. And There was one woman who was obviously dying in the hospital She was all alone in this cold, not very well-furnished room, all by herself. And there was a window right by her head. And she she was very weak, but she could turn her head. And outside the window, there was a a tree. And this was very early spring, just like it is here. So you could imagine this tree just beginning to sprout some leaves perhaps some buds of flowers. I don't know what kind of tree it was. But he, she, he commented on what, uh, even though her circumstance was so dire, as was m- many people in the camp, he said she had a remarkably calm and, and loving kind of uh, expression. And he asked her about that. And she said, because I'm here with this tree, And I see that the tree is telling me, I am life here with you, eternal life. You are not alone. So even in that dire circumstance, she found a connection with life. Hildegard of Bingen calls compassion 
awakening the heart from its ancient slumber. This awakening of the heart is part of our journey. And it may be inevitably a journey into darkness and difficulty. The people that I think of as being exemplars of compassion on the Buddhist path, such people as the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh, or remarkable bodhisattvas like Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, None of these people, if you read about their lives, had an easy or comfortable journey. And yet what remarkable people they are. They have been tested over and over again. Opening the heart may also be a journey of, uh, of ecstasy or joy. Hafiz, our friend Hafiz, who... If you haven't read this wonderful book of his poetry, I recommend it. It's called The Gift. I'd like to share with you a poem called The Gift. He says, Our union is like this. You feel cold, so I reach for a blanket to cover our shivering feet. A hunger comes into your body, so I run to my garden and start digging potatoes. You ask for a few words of comfort and guidance. I quickly kneel at your side, offering you this whole book as a gift. You ache, you ache with loneliness one night, so much you weep. And I say, here's a rope, tie it around me. Hafiz will be your companion for life. That desire, that simple desire, it is quite natural in us to respond the suffering. The journey of opening the heart may be a rather ordinary and quiet journey. I think of Thoreau sitting by his pond. I think of mystics, hermits, housewives, fathers living ordinary lives as their hearts quietly crack open. And on retreat, we often quietly crack open, and it may be something extraordinarily ordinary, extraordinarily simple. A recent retreat I was teaching, a couple were at the retreat together, and the wife came in for a a meeting one day and said she had just, her heart had so opened to her husband why? They were sitting in the dining room and she looked over and and saw his hand resting on his cheek. He was looking rather a little lonely, a little vulnerable, and she said the sight of his hand resting on his cheek just touched her so enormously and her heart blew open. The heart opens in so many different ways, in so many different contexts. It may come from being in nature, from noticing the exquisite beauty of our earth, and yet also knowing how the earth's resources are being exploited, damaged, perhaps lost forever. Compassion certainly may come over the nightly news, witnessing the brutal violence inflicted by one people on another, and knowing 
in our wisdom the utter futility of it. It may come from knowing, from reading, from observing how many wise and creative and caring indigenous world people there are on the planet who do not have a voice in the political or corporate decisions which affect their families and communities. It may come in the unexpected events in our lives, a sudden illness, a trauma, an accident. We're going about our lives thinking we're in a story about being a mother, and then our child is killed. We thought we were in a story about being an athlete, and then we are left paralyzed by a freak accident. We thought we were about to realize a lifelong dream, and it all falls apart, and our illusions are shattered. Change of this nature can be sudden, swift, irrevocable, and in the face of this Suffering can engender more self-preoccupation or it can open us with compassion to the universal nature of the way it is in this world. In the kinds of suffering in the world, there are, there is no new news. To understand that it is not personal allows for compassion to enter to allow one's heart and mind to open. There's a lovely story from the time of the Buddha with the king Ashoka, who was a very powerful ruler and loved to go out and do battle and murder, you know, see how many of the enemy his armies could destroy. And There's a story that after one particularly brutal fight, he was out on the battlefield witnessing carnage, you know, his, his soldiers had done such good work. Walking through the battlefield, something entered him. He saw with shock and horror for the first time what he had, what he had put into action. And in that moment, it is said that a monk, some kind of ascetic monk started, was walking through the field, maybe a Buddhist monk, was walking through the field very mindfully, very gently. And the sight of that monk, it was like the fourth heavenly messenger, something shifted in Ashoka, and he determined to change his life and his ways. And so he became a student of the Buddha and established a kingdom that was ruled through Buddhist principles. So the heart can change in so many unexpected ways, but in whatever form it happens, the awakening of the heart, we could say, is a journey of intimacy, of becoming intimate with all aspects of the human experience, because compassion joins with life. Compassion does not stand separate and say, oh, you poor thing, too bad for you. It's not that at all. It joins without hesitation. And we all know this. It's this simple. You cut your right hand, 
your left hand doesn't say, well, too bad. You're on your own over there. I got better things to do. No, it immediately goes to help, right? We evidently have in our brain something called mirror neurons. This is a new finding in science. Mirror neurons tell us when somebody is suffering and move us towards that. We want to help. Bob Thurman, the great Buddhist scholar, once gave a lecture in which he started talking about these hands that we have, these human hands. And he went into ecstasy describing how these human hands are not meant for fighting. They're not like claws. They're not meant for aggression. They're not meant for hurting people. They're meant to help, to be creative, to heal, to touch, to connect us. They're compassion itself. On the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha was visited, as we all know, by all the hindrances, all the sufferings of mind and body. What did he do? When anger arose, when lust arose, when fear arose, it is said, he said, I know you. I know you fear. We have met many times before. I know you impatience. We have We have been together many times. You are impermanent. You are not me. You are not mine. I know you. You appear as momentary, as a momentary phenomena, and I am no longer afraid of you. And so he remained free from their influence, but intimately, without aversion. Wisdom and compassion. One time, many years ago, when I was practicing here at IMS for some months, I was here through a long winter. It was wonderful, actually. And you know, when you're here a long time, little treats really are just amazing. So... One day, a friend who lived in the area had made cookies and delicately wrapped up. There were maybe six of his friends here, so he had made little packages for each of us. We each had our little package of cookies that he sent in, and it was like Christmas. Wow, cookies! But he wrote a note attached to the cookies, and it said, All beings cheer you on. And it was the sweetest message to receive from the world coming into the retreat situation. All beings cheer you on. Really gave a lift to my practice. Because somehow mysteriously we can feel that as we sit. That we are not doing this practice for ourselves alone. That we really are practicing with and for everyone. A poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, You are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we inter are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. 
I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. Or as the poet Rilke wrote, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not ever complete the last one, but I give myself to it. In practical and sometimes mysterious ways, through our practice, through our intentions, our aspirations, our actions, we send out ripples into the great pond of collective consciousness. And we never know how far those ripples travel or how others will be affected by them. But as Rilke encourages us, we'll only know by giving ourselves to the task. I feel very fortunate at some of the ripples that have come into my life through the teachings of Dharma, and I still feel them rippling through me today. It's the ripple that never ends, and that is the way the Dharma works. So wisdom and compassion awaken as we practice. And as I said at the beginning, they're not so separate. So I'd like to close with the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Zen Patriarch. Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and wisdom as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and wisdom are different. They are a unity not two things. At the very moment there is awareness, then wisdom exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and wisdom are alike. Now let me read another meaning of this, also written. Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and kindness are alike. So as we practice, inevitably these qualities of wisdom and compassion or kindness arise, and that is good news. Thank you for your kind attention. Maybe we could just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.